Well, good morning, this your church. Good to see you all this morning. My name is Nate Maxfield and I serve as a deacon here. For those of you who don't know me, usually you see me with a guitar, but today it's my true joy and privilege to be able to open up the word of God with all of you today. Just wanna reiterate what Josh said. If you're here for the first time or you're newer to Missio, just wanna extend a very special welcome to each of you this morning. Again, I just encourage you, fill out that connection card, get it in the offering plate or take it on back to the Connection Center. Get a free gift. We want you to know that we're happy that you're here today. So thanks for coming. Um, We are currently in week five of a series through the Psalms and as such, We're gonna be looking at Psalm 5 today. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 5 with me. Uh, If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find it on page 449. We'll also have it up here on the screen for you. I'll give you a second to turn there. Psalm 5. This psalm is entitled, Lead Me in Your Righteousness. This is the word of God. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning, God, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word and Father, everything that you saw fit to reveal about yourself, you put in your word and we ask God this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide us in all wisdom and understanding. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, God, be pleasing to you. And God, by your Spirit, would you show us the heart of David's prayer in this psalm today and teach us 
what we need to learn from it, God. Be honored in our midst during this time. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and for his glory, amen. There is a new show that debuted over the summer on NBC that I am absolutely hooked on. You can just ask my wife, Jillian. She will attest to the fact that I am completely addicted to the show Songland. Has anybody seen Songland by show of hands? Two people, three people. (laughs) All right, I got some explaining to do. (laughs) Uh, For those of you who have not seen the show, the basic premise of the show is this. Four amateur songwriters get the opportunity to pitch one of their original songs before a guest artist judge. And the winner is selected by the guest artist judge. They pick the song that best suits them and then they release it as their latest single. Now, these guest artist judges, they're really well-known musicians. They've included everybody from John Legend to Megan Trainer. They've had bands like One Republic and even the Jonas Brothers on there. And so you can imagine that this opportunity is the chance of a lifetime for these amateur songwriters. And as the show, the episode progresses, three finalists are selected, and then they're then paired with a producer who helps them turn their original song into a radio hit, but not just any radio hit. You see, the hit has to reflect the artist's style, the artist's sound, and the artist's image. And so at this point of the process, questions are asked like, does this sound like something that this artist would sing? Are these lyrics in line with this artist's image? And so, as you might guess, a lot of the songs go through a great deal of change by the end of the episode, and occasionally the end product doesn't sound anything like the song that was pitched. But nonetheless, it goes through this polishing process, and then at the end of the episode, the three finalists have one more opportunity to pitch their song to the guest artist judge, and this time as a tweaked and finished product. And then the guest artist judge selects the song that they feel is the best fit for them, and then at the end of the show, the song mysteriously appears on Apple Music and Spotify as that artist's latest single. It is the coolest premise for a show ever. I geek out over it every single time and it's a lot of fun to watch. And being that I'm a musician and being that I'm a songwriter, I always love getting a sneak peek of the behind the scenes process that goes into writing a song. We might be wondering like, Nate, okay, whoop-de-doo, why are you sharing this with me today? Um, And so I wanna try something and please just humor me for the next 30 minutes, okay? Today I wanna put you in the guest artist's seat. Imagine for a moment that today you are the guest artist judge on Songland. And King David comes in and he pitches this psalm to you. He set it to music. It's a song that he's entitled, Lead Me in Your Righteousness. And my question to you today is, are you gonna pick it? Are you gonna sing it? Can you and I really, honestly sing this song? Can we really pray this prayer? Or do we have to tweak it? Well, in the next 30 minutes or so, I hope to help us find our answer. Um, As we begin, 
I think that it's gonna be mostly helpful for us, obviously, to pay attention to the lyrics today. So we're gonna spend a great deal of our time there. But it is worth noting that there are a couple notes at the beginning of this in the superscript that help us to understand what type of arrangement is being called for here. In the superscript, we see that it's assigned to the choir master. I like where this is going. <laughs> I'm down with it. I love a good gospel choir on a song, especially if it's directed by a choir master. I mean, this person knows what they're doing. So we should probably have our, our record label get in touch with them, because if we select a song, we're gonna want them on the project. But choir master. Next, we see that it's calling for flutes. It's for the flutes. Now, no offense to any flute players here, I love ya. I just don't remember the last time I heard a flute on a top 40 single. I mean, has it happened since the hustle came out? I don't know. <laughs> I would have to hear it, I guess, but we'll pay attention to the arrangement later. There's time for that later. But lastly, we see the artist's inscription. This is a psalm written by King David himself. So already we have some very useful information, right? We see that this psalm was meant to be set to music. We see that it was meant to be sung by people and we see that it was meant to go public. I mean, here it is, right? It's right in front of us and this psalm has gone public for the better part of 3,000 years. So in that sense, I think we're off to a pretty good start this morning. Now, if we're gonna see if we can sing this psalm, we gotta know what it says. We gotta pay attention to what's being communicated here. And so what I wanna do today is let's just take these lyrics apart piece by piece, okay? And let's see what we're dealing with here. And as we do this, there's three specific things in the psalm that I want us to pay attention to. And they're this. The first is David's fervency. David is praying this prayer with some serious passion. So I wanna unpack that. I wanna take a look at it. Next, I wanna take a look at David's petitions. What's he asking God for in this psalm? And then the last thing that I wanna to consider today is David's source of confidence. What makes David so sure that God will hear him and respond? So David's fervency, David's petitions, David's confidence. So let's look at David's fervency. This prayer is urgent, right? Right from the get-go, we get that feel. He makes two statements in the first two verses, and starting in verse one, he says, read, read along with me, he says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. And then in verse two, he expands this thought, he unfolds the depth of it a little bit when he says, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Basically, David wants God to hear him. David is wrestling with something and he's going to God about it. And he's going to God in a spirit of heaviness and we know this because words fail him and in verse one, he says that he groans. I mean, how often is our spirit really afflicted to the point where it just comes out in an audible groan? And I'm not talking about the sound that comes out of your kid's mouth when you ask them to clean up their room or to do the dishes like, Ugh. no. I'm talking about the audible manifestation of the ache of true lament. David was feeling it. David unfolds this depth of his plea in verse two when he asks God to give attention to the sound 
of his cry. He's not just saying, God, hear me because I'm crying. He's saying, give attention to the sound of my cry. Consider what the sound and the tone of my cry conveys about my need for you, God, to hear me. We also see that he's persistent, right? Not as he, he hasn't only made three arguments for God to hear him, uh, to give ear to his words, consider his groaning, give attention to the sound of his cry, but we see that his prayer is perpetual. In verse three, he says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. That's like saying, is it morning? Then God, you hear my voice. The beginning of every day is marked with David crying out to God. And not only is David persistent, he's also expectant. He expects that God hears him. He says, in the morning, what? You hear my voice. He states it as a truth. He goes on to say, in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you. And then what does he do? He watches. He anticipates that God will hear him and he anticipates that God will eventually answer somehow, some way. Have you ever been there? Are you there right now? We don't know the specific instances or circumstances that caused David to pray this particular prayer. We will see in a moment that his enemies have something to do with it and we know by the short time that we've had in our study through the Psalms already that the guy had been through a lot. We saw that he was pursued by Saul, he was threatened with death. He had to flee for his life not only from Saul but from his own sudden Absalom when Absalom overtook his throne temporarily. Two of his sons were murdered. He literally had thousands of enemies and the list just goes on for David. It's hard to imagine his afflictions. And that doesn't mean that we don't have sorrows and afflictions, right? If David wasn't beyond it, we're certainly not beyond it. Have you ever desperately cried out to God for something? Have you ever found yourself in a season where you're perpetually crying out to God for the same thing? Have words ever failed you in those moments? Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's a crumbling marriage. Maybe it's a significant loss or illness. Or maybe today you just have a thorn in your flesh where daily you're desperate for God to lead you in his grace to get through the day. You ever been there? Could you sing this song? We looked at David's passion. Let's look at David's petitions now. We already know that he's asked God to hear his words, but aside from that, what are the requests that he's making in this prayer? Essentially, there's three, and to see what they are, we do have to jump ahead a little bit, so skip ahead to verse eight with me. And in David's first ask in verse eight, he prays, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So in this verse, we catch a glimpse that David's 
enemies have something to do with his plea. They're surrounding him. He's feeling pressure from those who are against him and we see that he's depending on God to help him walk in righteousness in light of this fact. I'm sure that seeing wickedness all around him go unpunished presented all sorts of opportunities for discouragement, right? And I'm sure that those moments of discouragement created all opportunities for David's foot to slip, to be consumed with doubt, to be consumed with the temptations that usually accompany doubt. And David here is recognizing his need for God to lead him in righteousness. He's recognizing his need for a way of escape from the corruption that so easily infiltrates. He, he indicates this when he says, God, make your way straight before me. David knew that as God's anointed earthly king, he was God's representative to the world around him and his enemies were watching. The stakes were high and so he prays, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Next, essentially, David asks God to do something about the wicked. We already know that he's feeling pressure from his enemies around him and he goes on to speak about their character. We catch a glimpse of it in verse nine. Read with me when he says, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. These enemies are dishonest. They're unable to speak the truth. They leave a wake of destruction in their dealings with others. Their throat is an open grave. Like what imagery is packed into that statement? John Calvin in his commentary, he described this phrase as equating to these people being devouring gulfs. They're eager and have an insatiable desire to bring down and to destroy. And these people can't be trusted. They're deceitful. They flatter with their tongues. And so David, he asks God to deal with them accordingly, right? Look at verse 10 with me. He says, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out for they have rebelled against you. Notice that David indicates that their evil deeds all boil down to rebellion against God. And David here, notice that he's not as much concerned about their rebellion towards him, right, as he is about their rebellion towards God. David isn't just saying, God, cast this person out because they're my enemy. He's saying, God, cast them out because they're devoted to being your enemy. Make them bear their guilt, oh God. Cast them out. Finally, after asking God to lead him in his righteousness, after asking God to deal justly with the wicked, David makes one more request in this prayer. Read with me in verse 11. He says, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. So in other words, David's saying, God, let your deliverance 
your protection of your people, generate praise and adoration from all who are covered by it. Let the end result be them exulting in your name. Lead me in your righteousness. Deal justly with the wicked. Let those who seek refuge in you rejoice. Do any of these petitions resonate with you? In the midst of the world's pressures, have you found that you desperately need God to lead you in his righteousness? Have you ever been bothered by how sometimes the wicked seem to prosper in this life? Like, does that bother you? Have you ever been moved to rejoice in God when you consider how he's protected or delivered or answered you? Could you sing this song? Would you pick it? We looked at David's fervency. We looked at his petitions. And now let's consider his confidence. David certainly prays his prayer with some mighty boldness. And so what makes David so sure that God is going to hear him and that God's going to do something? Well, in a sense, we've kind of been working backwards so far, right? We jumped ahead to the part of the psalm where David makes his requests before God, but these requests that he makes are actually made on the foundation of two specific sources of David's confidence that I wanna look at today. Right in the first few verses, David's pleading with God to hear his prayer. It spills right into David appealing to God's righteous character, which is the first of the two sources of confidence that I wanna look at today. We mentioned before that David was expectant, right? He expected God to hear his prayer and he expected God to do something. And at the tail end of verse three, when he says, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch, the following verse, verse four, is connected to that thought because it starts with the word for. We can word, read the word for like we would read the word because. And verse four says for or because you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Well, one thing's for sure, if we pick this song, it's not gonna end up on Caleb. <laughs> I don't think this passes the positive and encouraging filter test. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> David's saying to God that I expect you to hear my prayer and eventually do something somehow because you yourself do not delight in wickedness. You yourself, God, see this problem and it's way more offensive to you than it is to me. Evil cannot dwell with you and these boastful enemies are not just my enemies, they are your enemies and they will not be able to stand before your eyes, God. They're ultimately sinning against you and you, God, would be just to make them bear their guilt. God, you would be just to make them fall by their own counsel and to cast them out. God, these people are poised against you and because of your righteous character, they're objects of your wrath which inevitably, at a time of your choosing, will be carried out. 
David knew that because of God's righteous character, he could pray this prayer with confidence because God will eventually deal with the wicked. Now, let's hit pause for a second in our quest to see if we're gonna sing this song. Because sometimes when you're writing a song, if there's any songwriters out there, sometimes you hit a roadblock, right? And you need to deal with it. You need to work through it or you need to scrap the song altogether. And if the only source of David's confidence, if the only thing that he appealed to was God's righteous character, we have hit the roadblock of all roadblocks. I wanna park here and I wanna work through it before we look at David's second source of confidence because there is a very difficult truth that you and I, we've gotta deal with it and we will never fully appreciate David's second source of confidence until we wrestle with this. And that truth is this. God's righteous character on its own is not a source of confidence for us. It is our downfall. God's righteous character on its own is not a source of confidence for us. It is our downfall. If all that we have to appeal to is God's righteous character, we can't sing this song. Because of God's righteous character, apart from any intervention on God's part, this psalm is actually against us. Let that sink in. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, he cites this very same psalm that we're looking at today when he asserts the truth of everyone's sinfulness before God. Keep your finger in Psalm 5 and turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, you'll find this next reference on page 940. Romans 3. Again, keep your finger in Psalm 5. Romans 3, I'm going to start in the ninth verse. Here's what it says. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, so read here, all apart from Christ are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Does this sound familiar? He goes on in verse 18, he says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19, 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul here is saying that all of us by nature are God's enemies. Every single one of us has a sin problem that we ourselves cannot solve. The fact that he pulls from Psalm 5 to make this case indicates that the term enemy in Psalm 5 extends beyond David's enemies to any unregenerate person aside from Christ. And no matter how inconsequential or small or insignificant we try to make our sin out to be in the end, you and I, we are all guilty of rebellion towards God and that is a deadly verdict. If all that we have to appeal to is God's righteous character and nothing else, then we can just go ahead and put our names in anywhere we see the word wicked or boastful or enemy or evildoer in Psalm 5. If all we have to appeal to is God's righteous character, you and I cannot sing this song. You and I cannot pray this prayer. So this begs the question, what about David? Why can David pray this prayer or sing this song? What's so special about David that this is not a psalm against him? And if there are no righteous, how can this psalm speak of people being protected and blessed by God? How? Well, to answer that question, I want to look at David's second source of confidence, and it's this. God's faithfulness to his covenant promise, period. God's covenant promise is first seen in Genesis after Adam and Eve sinned, when after pronouncing the curse of sin and death upon Adam and Eve and all who would come after them, which includes all of us in this room, After pronouncing that curse of sin and death on them, he then promises to raise someone up from Eve's offspring to destroy the serpent, to deal with sin. And despite man's perpetual unfaithfulness ever since that time, God has remained faithful to that covenant. It sets the narrative of all of Scripture from God promising to bless all nations through Abraham's, off, Abraham's offspring to delivering the Israelites from the hand of Egypt to now, at this point in the story, King David. David was anointed by God to be king over Israel and God established a covenant with David and told him that from his offspring, God would raise up a king whose kingdom would have no end, whose rule would have no end and God promises that his steadfast love will never depart him and so we see that 
this offspring promised in Genesis is gonna now come through David and that it's gonna be a king. And the prophet Isaiah gives us a glimpse that it's not just gonna be a king, but it's gonna be Emmanuel. It's gonna be God himself with us. And the New Testament affirms that indeed it was the word made flesh, God among man, Jesus Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of this very same covenant promise made back in Genesis. And when David, he only had a glimpse of the whole picture. And he did not live to see the exact fulfillment of it, but he nonetheless trusted God. He feared God. He sought refuge. The very act of trusting is an act of seeking refuge, and he sought refuge in God and his promise. He knew that his salvation was wrapped up in it. Was David perfect? No, definitely not. David had a sin problem that he himself could not fix too. But when he did sin, he went to God to confess and find forgiveness. He depended on God's promise for his salvation and because through faith he feared God and sought refuge in his promise, it was counted to him as righteousness. We know this because we can read elsewhere descriptions of David as blameless. We know that he himself wasn't blameless, but through faith in God he was. We see elsewhere him described as a man after God's own heart. It was a righteousness through faith, not a righteousness of works. David conveys this confidence in God's faithfulness to his covenant with some of the language that he uses in Psalm 5. So go ahead and turn back to Psalm 5 with me, if you will, and we'll take a look at it. I mean, first off, he's addressing the one true Lord, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the Lord that he is within covenant relationship with, and this is the one true God to whom he goes and appeals to. And we see that he calls the Lord his king. There's so much reverence packed into that statement. And then in verse seven, read with me, uh, we see that he has fellowship with God, that he's able to enter God's house on the basis of God's promised steadfast love. Read verse seven with me. He says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So, Notice that David isn't enjoying fellowship with God based on anything that he himself did. It was all God's doing. It was God's steadfast love that was the basis for this fellowship. And God's steadfast love to David equated to God's faithfulness to his covenant. David simply trusted. And by trusting, David sought refuge in God. David then goes on to equate this refuge with righteousness. In verse 11 and 12, he uses two parallel statements to expound the idea that the righteous then are those who take refuge in God. In verse 11 he says, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. He goes on to say, let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. And then we have this word for 
again, indicating that the next thought is connected to the previous thought. And in this parallel statement, David says in verse 12, for you bless the righteous. In the way that he's constructed this statement, he is revealing with absolute clarity that those who take refuge in God, verse 11, so those who trust God and his promises, those who fear him, are counted here in verse 12 with the righteous. And the righteous are blessed by God because as we read here, God covers them with favor as with a shield. God's favor protects them. So what does it mean for us today to take refuge in God? Simply put, it just, it means trusting in God's provision for his fulfillment to his covenant promise. We learned a few weeks ago when we studied Psalm 2 that those who take refuge in God's anointed king are blessed, right? And we learned that the anointed king of Psalm 2 wasn't David, right? David was simply a foreshadowing of the one who would come from his offspring. Instead, it was Christ, he was the anointed king. He is the anointed king. The promised seed of Eve, God among us, who defeated sin and death and who dealt perfectly with the problem of sin that you and I could not fix. You don't have to turn back there now, but take some time today after you go home to finish reading Romans 3. It continues by saying that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law and the prophets, they bear witness to it, right? But the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for all who trust, for all who take refuge in this promise. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christ came to fulfill God's covenant promise that was made all the way back in Genesis by atoning for our sin and so providing the only way for us to be set free from sin and to be restored back into relationship with God the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And consider the grave irony. The irony is this. Jesus, the only one to ever walk this earth and fulfill the righteous requirement of God's law. He was punished for us as though he were the wicked in Psalm 5. In Psalm 5, verse 10, David calls for the wicked to be made to bear their own guilt. And yet Christ willingly bore our guilt. In the same verse, David calls for the wicked to fall by their own counsel. And yet it was our human counsel that condemned Christ to death. 
Again, in the same verse, David calls for God to cast out the wicked because of the abundance of their transgressions. Yet for the abundance of our transgressions, Christ was cast out of the Father's presence on the cross when he bore our iniquity. We were the rebels, but he was treated as though he was the one who rebelled against God. He bore the punishment of the wicked in our place. And the crazy part is this. This is part of God's answer to David's prayer to deal with the wicked justly. That any vile offender who would trust him would find redemption in Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for their sin. The vilest, wickedest enemy of God could find redemption because of the work of Jesus Christ and God's justice would be satisfied. God would have dealt with that wicked person justly if they just believe. Jesus Christ is God's provision for the fulfillment of his covenant promise. And when we trust in God's provision for our salvation, for our being restored back into relationship with God, we take refuge in God. And as we take refuge in this promise, the Bible tells us that Christ's righteousness covers us. And so then righteousness becomes not about our works, right? We read today, by our works we'll never be justified. We'll only be proven guilty. Instead, righteousness is about refuge. If you remember one thing today, remember this. Righteousness is about refuge. It's clear in today's passage. It's about refuge in Christ and his righteousness to say, God, lead me in your righteousness is to say, God, lead me in refuge in Christ and his righteousness. Lead me in light of the gospel, God. And when we take refuge in Christ, we can pray this psalm. We can sing this psalm. David sought refuge in God and he could pray it. We can pray alongside David and cry out to God in our moments of desperation and we can know God hears our cry. We can be turned to lament over sin and wickedness instead of being enslaved by it. Think about that. In our hardest moments, we can rest assured knowing we have fellowship with God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And when it seems like evil is winning all around us, and it does, doesn't it? When it seems like evil is winning all around us, when it seems like wickedness in this world perpetually goes unpunished, we can take heart knowing two things. First, God can save the wicked. Their sin has been justly dealt with in Christ if they would just repent and believe. Paul, whose words we read in Romans 3, 
At the start, he was a wicked man. He was known for persecuting Christians. He was responsible for many murders of early Christians. And God got a hold of his heart and Paul sought refuge in God through Christ. And because Christ bore the punishment of the wicked, that wicked man, Paul, he was dealt with justly and he went free. That's the first thing we can take heart in. Second thing, we can take heart knowing that God, he will eventually deal with the wicked who refuse to repent. He's not gonna tolerate it. And we can take great comfort in knowing that those who take refuge in Christ will be safe under God's care and protection when that day comes. On that day, those who seek refuge will be able to rejoice as souls hidden in Christ and his righteousness, covered by God's favor as with a shield. Is that a song you can sing? Is that a song you pick? Know that you were meant to. This psalm of refuge is meant to be the story of your life. In the end, we're either seeking refuge in Christ or we're not. There is no middle ground here. And so for those of you here who have yet to live in refuge in Christ. Maybe you've never sensed a need for refuge in your Christ and I implore you today to consider the warnings of Romans 3 for all of us apart from Christ. Consider how that applies to you. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glory. We all have a sin problem that we on our own cannot fix. It includes everybody. Consider the warning of Psalm 5 for those who do not take refuge. Consider the inverse of some of the verses that we read. Those who do not fear God are going to walk a a crooked way. Those who do not take refuge in Christ will not enjoy fellowship with God. They will not rejoice or sing for joy or be protected from God's wrath on the day of judgment. On that day, they will bear their own guilt. And as Romans 3 says, they will, be cast, they will be without excuse. They will be cast out of God's presence forever. Consider your need for refuge and turn to Jesus. Friend, I urge you today to trust in God's provision for your salvation. Rely on God's faithfulness to his covenant promise and find shelter in Christ and his righteousness today. For those who have sought refuge in Christ, be encouraged about what he's accomplished on your behalf. Take heart that no matter what this world or this life throws at you, you ultimately have a reason to rejoice. Even in the midst of hardest times, you have fellowship with God. In Christ, God has spread his protection over you and you are covered with his favor as with a shield. Somebody say amen. Amen. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them 
that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray.